This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, tracking anti-government extremism with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Each year, the organization puts out an annual report on hate groups in America. This year, in the wake of the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, they released a special three-part report all about the forces, elements, and yes, elected officials that fomented the anti-government movement. We talked with expert Kate Bitts about the report and about what we should be aware of, both across the country and here in the Pacific Northwest. That's next. So we know that under the Trump administration, hate, extremism, and white nationalism grew dramatically, but the insurrection at the nation's capital seemed to signal something else. So the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks the activity of these hate groups, just released their annual Year in Hate and Extremism report for 2020. And this one features a three-part study of what is called anti-government extremism. So here to talk about that and about what we can do is Kate Bits. She is a program manager and trainer organizer with the Western State Center with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and she's an expert in tracking and countering white supremacy here in the Pacific Northwest. Kate, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this this morning. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. So I'm going to start here uh, because you track this sort of thing professionally. Um, I'll ask you, were you at all surprised by the events of January 6th? This was not a surprise. No. So we had pretty clear indications beforehand that several groups were talking about and planning a storm on the U.S. Capitol. We also know from the events throughout the last four years and last year, especially armed protesters entering state capitals in Michigan last spring and even being let into the Oregon State Capitol by an elected official in Oregon last December, that law enforcement agencies often really struggle to see these groups and their organizing for the threat that it is. It's pretty tragic and frightening that the trends we followed for so long around the country came to D.C. on the 6th. We should also keep in mind that there were members of these same organizations walking the halls of other state capitol buildings on January 6th, including in Kansas and Georgia. So those events were not as violent. However, it was certainly a coordinated nationwide effort. An effigy of Kate Brown was tarred, feathered, and burned in Salem that day. In Olympia, rioters broke through the gates of the governor's mansion. Those are all things that would have made nationwide headlines if it wasn't for the violence at the Capitol. It's all enormously frightening. And, you know, I will ask you at some point, not at this point, but I will ask you if you saw the the 6th of January as a culmination or as like a harbinger of the beginning of something. But let's let's also back up a little bit. And for people who may not know the nomenclature, can we define anti-government extremism? What, what does it mean roughly? Yeah, so when the SPLC report talks about anti-government groups, within their framework, they're talking about groups that tend to engage in groundless conspiracy theorizing. So you'll often see references to a new world order or more recently, a great reset. These groups advocate or adhere to extreme anti-government doctrines. Many will warn of impending violence through the government and use this as a justification for preparing themselves for violence by organizing paramilitary groups. A lot of these anti-government groups also don't see themselves as prejudiced against marginalized groups. They're not the type of folks who would call themselves white nationalists or racists at all. That said, these groups often also rely on messaging about patriotism as a cover for extremist beliefs that are anti-democratic, often xenophobic, and opposed to the legitimacy of the federal government and other government bodies. So, for example, we've seen many of their leaders justify violence against protesters who are out there on the streets protesting for racial justice. 
which is something that the report uh, in Black Lives Matter, uh, the report in the uh, SPLC talks about extensively. But, you know, some of the things that you're talking about here, uh, belief in conspiracies, anti-government doctrine, uh, they don't see themselves as uh, as doc- doctrinally racist. We saw a lot of these different groups at uh, the Capitol on the 6th, uh, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, QAnon Believers, White Nationalists. Maybe talk a little bit about what ties these groups together and why they were all there, you know, working with common purpose that day. Right. These groups do have very disparate worldviews and um, often disputes between each other. But the connective tissue between them for the past five years or so has been pro-Trump sentiment. The MAGA movement has brought really similar constellations of groups together on the streets of Portland for years, for example, where we do see paramilitary and anti-government groups rubbing shoulders with people who've espoused far more extreme and hateful ideologies. Many of the arrestees on January 6th had previously attended a lot of rallies around the country. Um, They tended to see President Trump as their leader. The report talks about, and it's in three parts, and I really recommend that people read it. This is the Southern Poverty Law Center report. Uh, and it talks about how the anti-government movement was ga- galvanized by three things over the course of 2020. It was the pandemic. It was a Black Lives Matter protest, as you mentioned. And then also the disinformation around the election. So let's unpack it by starting with the pandemic. Talk about some of the ways that the pandemic fueled anti-government activity in 2020. Right. Um, We're in a situation that continues into 2021, where we're seeing these massive social and economic disruptions. This is something that creates understandable fear and anxiety and has shaken a lot of people's sense of stability. Anti-government movements are intentionally trading on that type of fear and uncertainty. They're also seeking to exacerbate it because that creates an opportunity for them to to broaden their influence in our communities. These groups don't like government on a good day, and they often will see routine public health measures like vaccinations as somehow oppressive. So it makes sense that they were able to quickly mobilize protests against common sense ideas like requirements to wear masks indoors during a global pandemic of a respiratory virus, right? For such highly individualistic groups, the whole idea of a situation that requires that type of collective action to protect communities, that's a challenge to their ideology. Mm. Many of them chose, instead of facing up to this situation, to turn to conspiracy theories that downplay or even deny the danger entirely. In these uncertain times, conspiracy theories that blame the government itself for difficulties that were caused by the pandemic have been a really effective recruit. Yeah, that, that absolutely seems to be the case. And, you know, we also see this. On the law enforcement side, um, uh, the, the the whole constitutional sheriff's movement, and this is something that is is getting uh, a lot of attention here in Washington because of Sheriff uh, Snohomish County Sheriff Adam Fortney. Uh, but there are others all across the country who are are sort of following these uh, th- these same sorts of uh, parameters that you're talking about, where. They refuse to uh, enforce mask mandates. They refuse to enforce stay-at-home laws and things like that. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that sort of plays into this this anti-government sentiment? We are in a situation where a lot of this anti-government sentiment has been mainstreamed, and that does include some public officials, including in our state here in Washington, who see the world that way and are backed up by nationwide organizations like the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Uh, I have to plug 
Chloe Cooper's work at Political Research Associates as a great source if people are interested in learning more about that. Um, when we talk about these movements, part of what we have to understand is that there is a whole apparatus of think tanks, organizations, you know, groups that put out talking points and policy ideas to try and prop up this idea that the federal government is um, somehow not legitimate, that um, a county sheriff is the highest uh, law enforcement officer in the county and is not subject to federal oversight. These are all parts of a worldview that um, can have a really detrimental effect on our communities, as we unfortunately are seeing with the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I should mention that there is an event put on by our friend uh, Julia Ricketts at Code Blue Washington this Saturday, February 20th. It is a presentation all about constitutional sheriffs and, and the problem that they present. Uh, and it is there to raise money and volunteers for the campaign to recall Snohomish County Sheriff Adam Fortney. I will have info about that in the show notes, gang. Um, let's also talk about the role that the Black Lives Matter protest played in this. So, you know, the report talks about how initially some of these anti-government groups like uh, Boogaloo Boys uh, and even Eamon Bundy supported the Black Lives Matter protests, but obviously we know how that turned out. And a lot of groups that you track seem to really capitalize on this moment, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, as far as this support for Black Lives Matter protests, um, I would describe what happened last spring in terms of anti-government groups voicing support as being exactly that, voicing support, making supportive statements. Making supportive statements is an extremely easy thing to do, and it does not require a lot of practical follow-up, which also speaks to like an interesting conflict at the heart of this anti-government right-wing ideology, right? These groups don't support the police. Um, some of them will end up conditionally waving Blue Lives Matter flags, but we've also seen how that turned out on January 6th. Um, they also do not support an anti-racist worldview and really have a pattern of blaming Black communities for problems that come from systemic racism. So you can see how this is a conflict and how that support was difficult to sustain. True. Regarding Andy Bundy specifically, <laughs> this is a guy who... Um, really does take the um, the anti-government portion of his worldview seriously. And we've seen him over the years make a lot of statements that are supportive of immigrants. Um, back in 2018, he did a huge interview with BuzzFeed about how he was leaving the militia movement entirely due to racist views within the movement. I'm not saying that he doesn't take that completely seriously and earnestly in the moment every time he makes one of these statements or starts one of these initiatives. Um, I, I will say that there seems to be kind of a regression back to the mean with him um, each time that he does this. And I hope that these statements are placed in context by the media when he steps out to do this again. Well, and as I say, obviously, the sentiment turned because of the things that we saw in Kenosha and elsewhere. Um, and, and like I say, a lot of the groups that were present there uh, really did seem to capitalize on that moment. Um, can right. you just talk about the dynamic of that a little bit? Yes, it became a situation where, again, often driven by conspiracy theories, um, anti-government groups were going out to counter-mobilize against protests for racial justice. They would often describe themselves as being there for protection, either of the protesters or of businesses in the area. 
Um, but we also have to understand that the vast majority of these protests were peaceful, right? Especially in small towns and in the region where I live in the inland Northwest. Regardless of the fact that many of these were often planned by basically high school students, um, we saw large paramilitary mobilizations, for example, in North Idaho, because people were convinced by rumors on social media that these protests were actually planned riots. It led to situations where you had guys with plate carriers and long guns facing off against groups of kids holding signs. Um, they, to this day, will describe this as them having scared off people who were planning to riot. Um, I would analogize this to that joke in The Simpsons about uh, Homer buying a tiger repelling rock and knowing that it works because there are no tigers in his yard. <laughs> it's really something that helped these groups learn how to flex that mobilization muscle, however. Um, your opponent doesn't actually have to show up for you to use a situation like that as a training and recruitment opportunity and feel like you truly are a hero to your community. Um, unfortunately, it was that type of repeated mobilization and, um, you know, real building of a routine that led to some of the obvious readiness for anything that we saw on January 6th. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You can see how it all is leading up to that moment uh, when you look at the whole equation in reverse. Um, and then, of course, the thing that really seemed to light the match, and this is the third uh, chapter or portion of the report from the SPLC, which is uh, all about the movement to deny election results. We know that disinformation drove a lot of what happened on January 6th. But I'll ask you, do you feel that these groups were manipulated by the disinformation or that they used it or, or both? Definitely both. There's not a dichotomy there in my mind. Um, you really have to think about the power of the then president of the United States, the entire media and nonprofit apparatus that, um, that he brought to the table in addition to having the biggest mic in our entire country, basically. This whole group geared up to make these spurious claims about the 2020 election results and to mobilize people to come to this rally turned insurrection. That kind of media machine is very persuasive and it had been working for months after the election to try and put the results into question. Even the court filings by the lawyers of people who are now accused of committing crimes in the insurrection, these show that many people really believed the lies that they were told they thought that it was their patriotic duty to assist in storming the Capitol. Um, that said, it's not all people who were legitimately tricked and are now voicing regret or confusion about what happened. If we're going to secure our democracy, it's most important to turn our critical eye on the propagandists who motivated a lot of this, even though they knew better. People who intentionally spread lies about racial justice protests over the summer, claiming that these were driven by outside influences, you know, everyone who enabled Trump's focus on a completely baseless set of claims about the 2020 election results, they did know better. So it's those who know better and do this anyway that we really need to focus on in our analyzing and our community organizing. That intentional manipulation is how five people end up dead. And we unfortunately have also seen this ascend to the halls of Congress, right? I mean, we've seen people recently elected with ties to these extremist groups like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, others. How concerned is the Southern Poverty Law Center about this development? So we're always really concerned when people with concrete ties to hate groups are elected to public office. When this type of bigoted ideology comes into the mainstream, it's a very real problem for two main reasons. 
For one, it erodes our democratic institutions. It also brings violence into our communities. Um, this is not the first time that people with ties to the far right have been elected to important public offices, right? We've seen this in the past four years, in particular in terms of elected and appointed officials who brought anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and anti-LGBTQ ideologies and policy proposals into the highest levels of government. This caused horrible harm to marginalized communities. Some of the new members of Congress, as well as some members of the state legislature here in Washington, also subscribe to even more extreme belief systems and conspiracy theories than we had seen in office in the past four years. When people ride these kind of waves into public office, that is a real worry, in part because our electoral system is pretty stacked in favor of the right in this country. A lot of state legislatures are now building on Trump's baseless claims of election fraud to propose further restriction on voting rights. That's where you see a ratchet that can really take us in a terrible direction in terms of who is holding office and who is speaking from the podium of a leadership position um, and espousing these types of ideas that harm our communities. Yeah, I mean, you talk about uh, the move to suppress votes, uh, and I will just mention, uh, and everybody watching knows this, but Indivisible is pushing very hard for both H.R. 1, the People's Act, and also the John uh, Lewis Voting Rights Act. And, of course, uh, to get those through, we're going to need to get rid of the filibuster, but that's a different discussion. Uh, you know, I will just ask you, because you're bringing up some uh, s- some historical language in the way that you have sort of described the situation that we're in right now. I'll ask you, do you, as, as you study this, do you think of any historical precedent uh, that matches or in any way, as Mark Twain would say, rhymes with where we're at right now? Um, I know that a lot of people look to 20th century Europe and try to make a lot of comparisons there. Um, but the closest historical precedent to what we're seeing right now is something that happened in our own country, which is the post-Reconstruction era. Um, Any of my friends who happen to watch this are probably going to laugh when I say this because I never stop telling everyone to read Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. It's the most current book that you can read uh, that was written over 100 years ago. So the fact is that we have seen successful mass voter suppression in this country in conjunction with a social movement seeking to overthrow multiracial democracy and restore white dominance. That was in the 1880s and 1890s. So I really encourage everyone to read up on the Wilmington coup of 1898. You can find a lot of parallels there to the storming of the Capitol. Um, I will send you some articles for the show notes. That would be terrific. And, you know, honestly, I, when you bring up things like this, these are the sorts of things that we should know. Uh, the, the, the massacre in Tulsa was something that we weren't taught in schools also. And I, and I feel like, and I, I'm sure that I'm preaching to the choir here, but the more we know about our history, uh, I think the more empowering uh, it, it'll be for us. You know, and I'll just ask you generally, and this is a question that's been rolling around in my mind as I've been preparing for this. You know, you mentioned the, the movements that started in, like, you know, the, the Reconstruction era. Um, I believe the Ku Klux Klan was born during that time. They went dormant for a while. They came back in the teens and 20s. Uh, and then they came back in a big way in the 50s and 60s in response to what was happening on the civil rights front. It seems like they, uh, you know, were ascendant in the 1990s. And then they, you know, went somewhat dormant for a while. And now they're, they're, they're back in full force. It, it seems like... White nationalism may ebb in this country, but it doesn't ever go away. And it's a big question, but I'll just ask you, why do you think that is? 
One thing I always keep in mind in my work is where we're situated in this country. We're a country that has always espoused very high-minded democratic ideals. Um, and many people have come to the United States looking to make that a reality, right? This country was also founded on stolen land, on genocide, and on enslavement. So it is not a story in our country of steady progress towards some kind of multiracial democratic ideal. Uh, our movements for justice have always been there, but we've always had to work very hard against the status quo to expand our idea of inclusive democracy. So I can't really spend a lot of time personally feeling shocked that white nationalist movements continue to organize, that they're trying to roll back the gains we've had during the civil rights era, and that there are still people who are trying to turn our country into a white ethno state. Um, if we're really going to make a difference over time and build a strong, equitable, and inclusive democracy, that is probably the only thing that can blunt the impact of white nationalist organizing. Well, and that's a long-term project. Yes. And, you know, honestly, you're anticipating the question that I intend to close uh, today's discussion with, because I really do want to get some of those proactive steps from you. Uh, but before I let you go, I want to talk about the rest of the Southern Poverty Law Center's annual report tracking hate groups generally. And this is separate from the three-part uh, discussion about uh, ex anti-government extremism, which I will have all of this for people uh, in the show notes again. And, and it is just such required reading. I really, really recommend it. Um, so there were a few things that stuck out uh, to me when I went through the, the, the report. One shows that uh, there were fewer hate groups mm -hmm. that you were tracking. I believe 838 was the number in 2020, uh, and that was down uh, over the last two years. And I wondered, did they consolidate? Did fewer groups just become more active? What, what do you make of that? That's a really great question because tracking group numbers is just one of the ways that we can track activity. Um, and this number really tells us a lot about what's happening in um, anti-government and hate movements in our country. So first, we should put that statistic in context. SPLC counted 11% fewer hate groups in 2020 as compared to the last three years. However, we're still at historic highs. So in 2015, that number jumped up from 784 hate groups to 892 we're still way up at 838 groups today, right? So you are not seeing a major decline as compared to the last three years where we've seen this historic high. Um, these numbers also tell us a lot about the recent history of far-right organizing. So bef right before the Unite the Right rally in 2017, hate groups were organizing very openly. They were developing this new propagandistic vocabulary and a set of symbols, calling themselves the new alt-right, they were really on a recruiting drive, like explicitly white nationalist groups, not necessarily the anti-government ones we were just talking about. Right. They were calling themselves the new alt-right, saying their ideas were simply pro-white and not against anyone, that type of thing. Um, Heather Heyer's murder at that rally made it very clear who those groups really were and how harmful and violent their ideology is. And that's when we started to see a lot of community pushback, you know, really pointed questions from the press, increased pressure from law enforcement. A lot of white nationalist groups at least temporarily disbanded under that pressure in 2017. Since then, we've really had a lot of churn. There's been a resurrection of some of the ideas that influenced groups like the Order and the Phineas Priesthood back in the 80s and 90s. So you've seen a rise in basically decentralized cell-based organizing that is aimed less at influencing politics 
and more at organizing intimidation and violence in our communities. We've been seeing, for example, a lot of flyering by white nationalist groups. This is where you start to see really awful things happen, like people convinced that there isn't a way to use politics to further their goals, so they will go out and commit a mass shooting. Um, that is kind of where you end up after the big public-facing um, efforts of 2015 to 2017 fall apart under pressure. It's a really frightening development, um, and I'm you know this uh, better than anybody because you you track this sort of thing. Um, I would also like to, because we are both in the Pacific Northwest, uh, get your thoughts on some of the hate groups here. I, what are some of the groups and movements that you are tracking that we should be most concerned with here in the Pacific Northwest? You know, the Pacific Northwest has been a very contested terrain in this regard historically. Hate groups often find a foothold here. In part, this is because of our demographics. And I mean, I do have to talk about the fact that Oregon, um, explicitly was founded to exclude black settlement. Um, at the time, this was described as an anti-slavery measure, but the effect was certainly to affect our demographics in a way that means that we are one of the whitest regions in the country. For hate groups, what that has often meant is that this is a place where they can organize, where they can recruit. Some of them will even um, occasionally have a an ambition to turn the United, this part of the United States into a breakaway state, right? They, they imagine this as their white homeland. This was a big trend in the white power movement of the 70s and 80s after they realized that de jure white supremacy was going to fall. And um, in a time where we see more progressive ideas on the march nationally, we might see this separatism start to come up again in our region, unfortunately. So every town is going to be a little bit different in terms of who is organizing there and who is of most concern. Uh, my advice for community groups is to keep an eye out for anyone who is not just out there flyering or holding a sign or putting up a banner once in a while, but for groups that appear to be gaining political power, access to local elected officials, really trying to push um, your town in a negative direction, right? Yeah. And, and as you say, we see a lot of that on the eastern parts of our state. Uh, and as you mentioned, there is a breakaway movement that wants to break off uh, parts of eastern Washington and Oregon, and I believe parts of Idaho, uh, and call it Liberty, which would be a, a new far-right state. Um, I will ask you uh, the, the final question that I, I was alluded, alluding to earlier, um, which is, in your studies, do you see January 6th as being the culmination of a lot of this activity, uh, particularly the anti-government uh, extremism activity, or do you see this as something that is like a, a spark point and more of a beginning? It's, it's hard to say that it is really one or the other, right? It probably does mark for some of these groups a shift in who they're willing to work with, how public-facing they're willing to be, and, um, you know, also in their view of, of the last four years. Um, many of these groups do have disparate worldviews. We talked about how the connecting glue for them on January 6th and throughout the last four years has been pro-Trump sentiment. But despite the fact that they all showed up together on January 6th, they're not all going to have the same reaction and interpretation of that situation. And we may see more fracturing from here. 
right? So um, since then, we've seen some conspiracy believers who subscribe to QAnon, for example, claiming that Trump's about to take back over and the entire inauguration was staged. Um, others, you know, certain factions of the Proud Boys are saying that Trump has served his purpose and is no longer useful for their movement at all. So as we look at January 6th and what followed, which was an acquittal from impeachment, um, one thing that I can definitely say is that that is a signal of a lack of accountability, not just for the former president, but for these groups who have seen him as their leader. Um, that lack of accountability does signal impunity, and it will probably be a signal that they should continue organizing however they see fit. So both a combination, I guess, and probably a sign of a shift. So on one hand, you're saying you're seeing potential fracturing because the thing that brought a lot of these groups together was Trump. On the other hand, uh, the fact that Trump was acquitted by the Senate uh, may give them a sense of impunity and a lack of accountability. So, I mean, unfortunately... I wouldn't uh, expect you to have a definitive answer on this, but uh, yeah, it looks like uh, at this point it could ultimately go right, either that was way. Six weeks ago, I guess we'll have to get back together in a year. <laughs> <laughs> you are welcome back anytime, Kate. So you know, on this show, we like to end on a positive note. And by the way, thank you so much for all of your incredible insight. Uh, we we've we've unpacked a lot. And uh, I would love to, just in light of what we have learned, uh, talk about some of the things that the Southern Property Law Centers recommend that we do uh, to fight back against uh, these hate groups and anti-government extremism right now. Can you talk about some of those things? Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> and first, I'd kind of like to start, uh, because this has really been in discussion since January 6th, um, a couple of the options and the roads that we should not take and the things that we should not do. Um, there's been all this discussion of creating, for example, a new domestic terrorism statute or a listing of designated domestic terrorist organizations. That's a really short-sighted idea. Um, a new federal domestic terrorism statute or a list would adversely impact our civil liberties as Americans. It could also be used to expand racial profiling or be wielded to surveil and investigate communities of color and political opponents in the name of national security. I let's not open that door, you know, let's, let's not go that route. It will not lead us in a positive direction. The same also goes for programs like countering violent extremism. Uh, we have over a decade of data on these programs showing that they really are not effective and that they do tend to profile and target immigrants, Muslims, and Black Americans. And can I ask you on that, you mean specifically government programs, yes? Right, yes. So, I mean, this is part of the reason why a big focus at Western State Center is working with communities. Um, I see this problem of anti-government extremism and white nationalism as one that is not a law enforcement problem. It is all of our problem. So for one small example, we've assisted cities in the Pacific Northwest to pass resolutions against white nationalism at the local level. These often include provisions requiring training for city staff. Uh, one of my favorite ideas on this came from Eugene, Oregon. Their resolution required an audit of public art to consider who's represented in that art and what stories it tells about the history and present of that city. Um, this might seem like something that is really basic or is not going to help in the short term, but we've talked so much about the importance of understanding history. Um, this is going to rethink public space. It's going to rethink the story Eugene tells about itself. We also work pretty closely with educators. So we have a toolkit on confronting white nationalism in schools. We've hosted trainings for educators to learn more about protecting young people from getting involved with these harmful groups. And we just released a conversation guide for parents and caregivers on how they can talk to their kids about this. 
Um, another thing, you mentioned that voting rights is a core issue for a lot of indivisible groups. And I'd encourage people who are involved in those type of groups already to think about how some of these core issues do connect to pushing back against hate groups. It's so exciting to see grassroots groups working on protecting voting rights, increasing civic engagement. By dismantling voter suppression and helping people hold their elected officials accountable, we can make sure that power stays where it belongs in the hands of the majority of Americans who want a strong, inclusive democracy. Same thing for a strong movement for racial justice and decarceration that's taking shape in our country, right? Um, the mass incarceration over criminalization sap resources and opportunities from communities of color. They also contribute to this culture that dehumanizes black and brown people and really fuels the core ideology of white nationalism. So all of the work that folks within Indivisible are doing to meet those goals is work that also makes my job a lot easier. Well, we are grateful to have people like you as allies and to be doing this work um, and everything that you just talked about, including some of the uh, interesting education programs that you talked about, can be found in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. As always, um, Kate, uh, I, I'm just I'm so grateful. Uh, you're, as I said, you're welcome back anytime to talk about this. I really appreciate all the information that you shared today. Kate Bitts, thank you so much. Thank you. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>